Every day, the Rundown Podcast keeps you in the loop about the people and places that shape Chicago. The show is possible thanks to the ongoing support of listeners like you who understand the value of our work to keep you engaged. Support the Rundown Podcast at WBEZ.org slash Rundown Donate. And thank you. What's up, Chicago? I'm Erin Allen, and this is The Rundown. Remember your elementary school? Mine was in Detroit, but it was named after a Chicago gym, Macy Jemison Academy. Macy Jemison was the first African-American woman to travel to outer space, and she used to actually come visit our school every year. And at school, we would regularly have these assemblies where we recited poetry by Black authors. And the school was built on the principles of Kwanzaa. Macy Jemison Academy was the first time I met Black folks with accolades and ambitions that stretched out into the universe. And importantly, I felt seen. My principal, education scholar Shelby Hopkins, knew me by name. And whenever I run into my preschool teacher, she tells me she still has my artwork from way back then. Which, I might add, was quite advanced. Right before I went to fourth grade, Macy Jemison Academy moved to a different location, and then it closed. My grades and my self-esteem waned during that transition to other schools. And it wasn't until high school that I felt as much at home as I did at Macy Jemison. So when I heard about this investigation my colleagues have been working on, looking into the 50 public schools that closed 10 years ago in Chicago, I wondered if it felt as messed up as my experience did. I don't know how things ended up for everybody who went to Macy Jemison, but as for those 50 schools in Chicago, it's not looking good. Today I'm talking to a couple of the folks who worked on that investigation. Chicago Sun-Times investigative reporter Lauren Fitzpatrick and WBEZ education reporter Sarah Karp. They looked into what has happened in the last decade since Chicago went down in history as the city that closed the most public schools all at once. So Sarah, can you set up the context? Like what was going on around that time that caused schools to close in the first place? In 2004... Then-Mayor Richard M. Daley announced something called Renaissance 2010. Mayor Daley's goal is to close failing and low-enrollment schools and open 100 new schools under Renaissance 2010. Renaissance 2010 is a controversial Chicago school initiative. And this was a plan to open 100 schools. A lot of them were charter schools, though some of them were magnet schools. And then at the same time, they started closing schools. Renaissance 2010 would close 60 underperforming schools and replace them with 100 new ones. Some parents and community leaders worry the plan would hurt children in already unstable academic environments. At the same time, the school district was slowly losing enrollment. And we were not closing that many schools. Daily we'd close maybe five schools, six or seven schools, sometimes less every year. So it's just like these little bursts of closed schools. Meanwhile, we have all these new opening schools and fewer kids. Then here comes Rahm Emanuel. The status quo is not working. And it's falling woefully short of the children of the city of Chicago, regardless of 
where they live and regardless of their circumstances. And he decides that he needs to do something, and he kind of took this rip-the-band-aid-off approach and decided that he was going to close 50 schools all at once. The Chicago Board of Education voted to close 50 of the city's public schools. It's the largest mass school closing ever in one U.S. city. Some 30,000 students will be affected, around 90% of them African-American. This was a time that on the national stage, there is this idea that the way to kind of fix poor performing schools was to, quote unquote, blow them up. So the idea was like you would maybe you'd close schools. Maybe you would turn over their management to a charter school. Maybe you'd turn over their management to a private company. Maybe you would fire all their teachers, let the kids stay in place. So there are all these sort of ways that they were trying to fix schools by doing something very drastic to the schools. And this was that was sort of the context that, that Daly was opening schools and closing schools. And then Rom comes and does it sort of on steroids and does 50 all at once. Wow. That all sounds extremely disruptive and like a bad idea, but um, let's let's see how this played out. So walk me through getting getting into this investigation. Did you just kind of look up and, and say, oh, it's been about 10 years. Let's let's do something. Or how did you decide to dig into this? I think our partner, Nader Issa, basically did that. He basically said, hey, it's we're coming up on 10 years. It was uh, the largest school closing in American history. Um, affecting, you know, tens of thousands of families, right? All kinds of staff, these buildings, these neighborhoods. Um, Let's see what happened. You know, all these big promises were made, whatever happened. Yeah. And so that's what we did. Yeah, right. So 10 years later, here we are. Can you just get into what were the promises that were made? And then what happened with those promises? Let's start with better outcomes for students. So basically, that was the promise, that there would be better outcomes for students. And the idea was that, I mean, Rahm Emanuel said this, we are going to be able to give these kids a better education. And in fact, the the way this was kind of put is like leaving these kids in these poor performing schools would be a disservice to these kids. What drove the decision was that our educational system is not living up to the full potential of our children. And so by shifting them to new schools, we're going to give them new opportunities, a new chance at a better future. And I'm going to jump in for a second and say that a lot of this is predicated upon a fixed pot of money. There's not infinite money here for everyone. So the the theory that was kind of sold throughout this was we have this much money. You see my hands here. (laughs) Here they are, the space. About a foot length of of money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have this many kids, we have this many buildings. If we take a bunch of the buildings out of the equation, we don't have to keep the lights on anymore. We don't have to pay two principals. You know, if you have 100 kids and two principals, it's cheaper to just have 100 kids and one principal. So the the, the theory also oh, was that I they see. could better use the money to improve education and, like, school-based um, experiences for kids. Yeah. On the topic of money, there was $155 million invested in these, this whole school closing, 50 schools project as a whole. What was that supposed to be for and what did it actually do? So CPS set aside this $155 million 
for the welcoming schools, which was the name they gave to uh, the schools that kids were sent to after their um, schools were closed. So the money was um, it was spent on repairs. It was spent on new programs. Um, schools saw new uh, international baccalaureate. They saw new fine arts. I want to say there might have been a foreign language in there, too. And then the welcoming schools were supposed to come with stuff. So um, everybody was going to get air conditioning because not everyone had it. And um, there were a bajillion iPads handed out, too. Like, every, you know, like <laughs> the iPads came up at so many press conferences at the time. And then circling back with our reporting, the iPads came up as like, oh, gosh, of all the things they wasted money on, the iPads were maybe not the best use of money in terms of what people on the ground in schools actually ended up needing. Wow. So not everyone went to the welcoming schools? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tell me about that. So only about 50 percent of kids went to their designated welcoming school. You you have to remember Chicago is a school district that is one of choice. So parents are encouraged to choose where it's best for their kids. And so a lot of parents did not think that the welcoming schools, despite all the extra resources, were the best places for their kids. And in fact, a lot of parents who did enroll their kids in the welcoming schools wound up transferring them before Mm -hmm. they they graduated eighth grade. And one of the things that that you have to remember is that, you know, even though these so-called welcoming schools were pretty close, there were in some cases like busy streets that kids were suddenly having to cross or Mm -hmm. there were, you know, people were very concerned about, you know, gang lines and, Mm -hmm. you know, neighborhoods are kind of compact in the city. So there were a lot of fears. And, you know, what's interesting is 10 years later, you know, I sort of was trying to ask parents, like, were, were those fears played out? Like how much of that was just fear and how much of that was like reality? And it, as it turns out, you know, a fair number of parents said that when they enrolled their kids into the welcoming schools, that they found like sort of a lot of conflict, chaos, mm-hmm. and did wind up taking their kids out to to schools that were actually lower performing than not only the welcoming schools, but then their schools that closed. Wow. So, you know, one thing that I think was a miscalculation on the part of the city administration was that test scores are not everything. No. And so even though you might say to somebody, well, the test scores are lower, if the environment in many other ways are better, parents are going to choose to have their kids in that environment. Mm. I think families want to be comfortable where they are, whatever it is that that means. In some cases, it is academics. In a lot of other cases, it's do we like it here? Do we have friends here? Do the teachers care about us? Do we feel safe? Can our family travel back and forth in a way that makes sense for us? There are these other factors. And Sarah has talked a ton about how schools are relationships. Yes. And that's incredibly hard to plan for. There was a feature um, that y'all worked on where there was some really, really compelling storytelling from a former uh, principal of one of these schools. And he said that one of his students cried and then he himself had to leave the room when he broke the news that that the school was going to be closing. And I mean, that hit me 
<laughs> so hard because, I mean, there were schools that I went to that I loved as a kid. Maybe they're performing well, maybe they weren't. But to your point, Lauren, I love them. I love being there and I love the teachers and the people. Yeah. And, you know, that principal, Demetrius Hobson mm-hmm. is his name. And um, this school was Henson Elementary. And the reason why I went back to him is because on the very last day of school, June 19th, 2013, I was at his school. I remember being there and, you know, I I remember this sort of odd dynamic where kids were a very excited because it's summer break. I mean, come on, they're kids, right? You don't have to go to school for a couple of months. (laughs) But um, but also, you know, this heaviness to the day and how he was trying to make it fun. But then, you know, for him and then the other teachers there, they they kept having to like kind of step back because, you know, they, they knew this was the end. The thing that was really hard for him and a lot of the principals is that there's this PR thing going on too. Mm-hmm. Like the um, city and the school district did not want these principals to talk against the school closings. Wow. You know, he, he loved his school. He had a lot of hopes and dreams for his school, but then he couldn't really say that. And I remember just, mm. it was such a hard situation. And then going back and talking to him, I mean, the pain is still yeah. so raw, oh, you, you know? can hear it. Yeah, for sure. Students are resilient. You know, they adapt. And they adjust and they make the best of the reality that they have. I worried about some students who had a similar background to mine, who moved a lot, and they needed school to be there, to be a stabilizing presence in their lives. As the schools closed, there was also this promise of repurposing those 50 buildings. Oh, man. There was. (laughs) Yes, there was. (laughs) Tell me about it. You know, the neighbors knew. The families knew. They predicted it. They said there was a promise that, well, these buildings, they won't just become empty shells. They're not just going to be magnets for crime. They're not going to be another vacant building, massively giant vacant building in your neighborhood. Uh, We're going to have a repurposing process. We're going to talk to the community. The aldermen will help. They were aldermen at the time, excuse me. Alderpersons will help. We're going to find new homes, new, you know, people to love these buildings. And we're going to do it in like the next two or three years. Hmm. I mean, they didn't. The reason, the reasons are complicated. One has to do with School buildings are tricky to begin with. They're schools. Yeah. They're not offices. They're not theaters. They're housing. They're not. Yeah. Yes. One of the reasons some of these schools became targets for closure is because they were very old and needed immense amounts of investment um, and repairs. And then they were in neighborhoods that didn't have a lot of investment in them and already had vacant buildings and vacant space. So the ones in neighborhoods that were considered desirable by developers were snapped right up, as you would imagine. And the ones surrounded by other empty buildings sat a whole lot longer. Um, And And still sit. And still sit today. And we, the three of us, fanned out and visited every single one, walked around, drove around, talked to neighbors, snapped some photos, wrote the notes, all the things, like checked out what, hey, what is going on here? Are there any signs of progress? And that's you, Sarah, and, and Nader. And Nader. 
And, I mean, what did we find? Like that more than half of them are still not being used for anything. And here is a misstep that our reporting turned up, which is that Chicago public schools retained ownership of this whole process. A school district. It's no mm. nothing against CPS, but it's a school district. Its job is educating kids, teaching and learning, supporting children. It's not city planning. It's not redeveloping neighborhoods. It's not keeping track of what neighborhoods need. So I, I, I mean, our reporting showed that a, a that probably CPS should have turned it over immediately to the city, right? The planning mm. department, um, the public building commission, and a little bit I. I'm confused about why that didn't happen in the sense that Rahm Emanuel was a very um, powerful executive over the city who uh, used his control over the schools in many other ways. So why that wasn't that whole process wasn't handed back over to the city to oversee Mm -hmm. and match up resources available with community needs remains a mystery to me. Lauren, can you talk about how it was to uncover whether or not money was actually saved by closing these schools. Yeah, and that was one of the promises that Uh we're going to save money and be able to do more useful things with it than, you know, fix an expensive roof on a building with 75 kids in it, something along those lines. So we set out to, like, try to crack this. We couldn't do it, mostly because um, folks in power, like, stopped keeping track. They stopped keeping track. Mm. of how they were spending money, say, for example, with some of the vacant buildings, like on the repairs, on the grounds, on the upkeep, on um, other things you would have to do to like kind of to secure a vacant building. So, you know, we we looked at the cost of the buildings. Um, Sarah and I, I guess, were able a little bit to look at, well, you've saved the cost of a principal and a clerk and one other kind of foundational position, like every school automatically gets those, no matter how big or small the school is. So we kind of did some back-of-the-envelope math about that to see how many staffers they saved money on. Um, but it was really frustrating to not – I can't even give you a ballpark of whether CPS saved money or did not save money in this process. Hmm. You know, it's it's one of the interesting like misnomers of the whole thing of closing schools. People think, well, of course that's going to save money. And – Yes. As Lauren said, you do get to get rid of some principals, some assistant principals, some clerks. But in the scope of Chicago Public Schools budget, which is $9 billion, the amount that you're saving for those positions is very small. It's not, you know, going forward, we still have a budget deficit that we're facing in 2025, Chicago Public Schools. Mm -hmm. And we also have you know, a lot of under-enrolled schools. We have a lot of underutilized schools. And the question is, well, couldn't we save money by, you know, closing some more schools? And, you know, what I want to say to people is like, yes, but it's a very long-term proposition. And it's not like you're going to really, the next year, you're going to solve your budget deficit mm-hmm. because you you closed 100 schools and it wouldn't solve your budget deficit mm-hmm. next year. So, you know, there's there's two dynamics going on. I think the biggest way that you can say that there's probably some, you know, some cost savings over time is if you're not repairing really old buildings or if you're not like replacing boilers or things like that, because those things are expensive. And, and it actually is a very big problem. But I just I just think like this idea that, oh, yeah, closed buildings 
to save mm-hmm. money. It's not a you know straightforward discussion. Yeah. We talked about the principal that you talked to. Have you talked to any other community members who were affected by this recently? And, and what are you hearing from them? As much as some of these neighborhoods have hollowed out, the people who remain still have these really strong feelings about schools. Yeah. Um, I was down uh, with Nader. What was the school? It was um, Garrett Morgan Elementary School, which is a super interesting, very modern, glassy building. It's set in a park. It's super cute. Where is it? 83rd and... Vincennes, around Vincennes. Maybe right around there. Yeah. And three gentlemen were sitting on their porch, and they were skeptical of our approach. Um, and the minute we said, we're just, we just want to know what, what's going on with this school, I mean, faces changed. Oh, wow. Smiles came up. Garrett Morgan, did you know he invented the traffic light? I did not. Did you know he invented the gas mask? No, I did not. <laughs> I mean, they talked about the one had graduated in the 70s and one had graduated in the 80s. They were still talking about the school like it was their friend. Yeah. At other places, you know, neighbors would say, well, there's a pool in the basement. That's where I learned to swim. Mm. You know, the gym is where we used to play all together. Um, so the the connections that people feel with their neighboring schools is um, it goes back to these relationships. That's what schools are, their relationships. That yeah. was really remarkable to see. Illinois passed a law that bans school closings up until 2025. And there are reports of half-empty schools across Chicago right now. What's going to happen in 2025? I mean, have do you get a sense that the city has learned any lessons here? Well, you have to remember who our mayor, our new mayor is. Oh, yes. So Brandon Johnson was very active in the fight against school closings as an organizer with the Chicago Teachers Union. He does not want to close schools. I mean, that's what he's publicly said. So we have to assume that that's what he's not going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. But I, I will say that one of the things that talking to Pedro Martinez, the CEO of, of Chicago Public Schools, who looks like he's at least for now remaining at the helm, mm-hmm. he talks about the fact that if we want, if the school district wants to modernize, renovate, repair buildings, that it could be a price tag of more than $10 billion. And he says that he's putting together, uh, you know, sort of a, a ledger of what would need to happen for this for this to happen. And he talks about how one of the greatest inequities that he sees in the school district is that some people, kids get to go to a school that's in good condition. And some kids get to go to a school mm-hmm. where the ceiling is leaking, the lead paint is chipping, they're cold in the in the winter and way hot in the summer or vice versa. Our systems in these buildings are so old and and so antiquated. So I don't really know how they solve that problem. And, you know, I I don't see, even if the state does come in with some more money, I I can't imagine that it's $10 billion worth of more money. So I I don't know what that that answer is going to be. Mm -hmm. Sarah, how do you see what has come of this investigation living on as you continue to report on education? You know, we went through about two decades of 
as I talked about before, this sort of blow them up education policy, mm-hmm. you know, that if we can only just get rid of the teachers, if we can only get rid of this, get rid of that, that we'll be able to, you know, improve schools. And I think that two decades on, that a lot of our reporting seems to say that it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> You know, that it didn't improve the outcomes for the kids, that the things that work that, you know, most studies show that work are more fundamental with like quality teaching, with well-organized schools, with relationships with families, that those are the things that really work to improve education. And that this sort of like idea that, oh, like just put a stick of dynamite and maybe if you blow up this school and you transfer the kids somewhere else, they'll just do better somewhere else. I don't think that it's proven much to work. I would add that schools are not islands in communities. Schools are very symbiotic with their communities. So our reporting showed that like, improving a school is not just as simple as the school itself, that if the health of the neighborhood around it, the health of the community around it mm. is poor, poor quality, poor quality of life, that the school can't do it by itself. Yeah. So I hope one of the takeaways has to do with supporting the communities where the school is certainly a pillar of that. It's one of the legs the community is standing on, but standing on one leg is uh, doesn't last very long. It's not very stable. You're going to fall on your butt at some point. Yeah. Um, I hope that is the takeaway, that these neighborhoods are what need help and support and investment. Lauren Fitzpatrick is an investigative reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times. Lauren, thank you. Thank you. Sarah Karp is an education reporter at WBEZ. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Chicago Sun-Times reporter Nader Issa and WBEZ Data Projects editor Alden Lowry also worked on this investigation. You can read more about the 50 schools investigation at WBEZ.org. And that's it for today. Thank you to Justin Bull and Sarah Stark for producing The Rundown and to Ariel Van Cleve for editing the show. Haley Bloomquist was the engineer for this episode. Our theme music is by Louis Weeks. And we love hearing from you. Do you live in a neighborhood where a CPS school was closed? If you have thoughts, email us. If you have questions, email us. TheRundownPod at WBEZ.org. I'm Erin Allen. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning.